Greetings, Dragon Cult Detective. Your credentials have been verified. You may proceed to access Renegade Files, where together we open the gates into paranormal experiences, unsolved mysteries, and conspiracy culture. I'm your handler, Lex Gordon, delivering this underground broadcast from the Jungle Villa Outpost deep in the uncharted tropics. This is Renegade Files Episode 53, Mind Control and MKUltra. Project MKUltra, most often just called MKUltra, was an illegal human experimentation program implemented by the CIA to develop procedures and identify drugs that could be used to weaken people and force confessions through brainwashing and psychological torture, or harden them against revealing sensitive information if captured by an enemy. It started in 1953 and was officially stopped in 1973. Or was it? Was it all just rebranded into a dozen other names? Pushed from the labs and individual subjects out across society as a whole? The CIA through MKUltra used numerous methods to manipulate its subjects' mental states and brain functions, such as the covert administration of high doses of psychoactive drugs without the subject's consent, electroshock, hypnosis, sensory deprivation, isolation, mental, physical, and sexual abuse, and more. All of this was done to manufacture assassins, to learn how to keep those captured by an enemy from divulging information, and for various other reasons. And let me be clear at the very beginning, this is not a conspiracy theory. This is a conspiracy fact. A group of people undertaking criminal activities for nefarious purposes. This happened. MKUltra is the six degrees of separation for conspiracy theories. Over and over, multiple and varied conspiracy cornerstones lead us back to MKUltra. The standard perception is that MKUltra used LSD on test subjects to try to learn how to manage mind control, but that's only the thinnest first layer of this program. Many other drugs emerged from the program and the goals of controlling people may not have vanished in 1973 when MKUltra is said to have officially ended. This is an enormous topic, a rabbit hole episode, and a deep dive that covers the origins the FOIA documents that revealed it, some controlled subjects we do know, some we suspect, and the clues that point to MKUltra's handiwork in today's media. It's one of the very few clear-cut conspiracy theorist victories. Speculated about, then verified, proven, documented, admitted, and yet still largely misunderstood or wholesale unknown by the average person. There's a lot here and we're going to go through the most relevant and interesting aspects and then dig into some of the more weird fringe theories that have evolved in the conspiracy sphere surrounding MKUltra. The information concerning MKUltra and its many ancillary programs and offshoots is not speculation. Like I said, we know this happened. We know who did it and why, and we can still see their fingerprints in and on society if we know how to look. 
many other podcasts and documentaries have gone over this subject, but my goal is to do something more here. I want to go into this and find the deep connections that tie it all together and make it relevant to us today. To do that, we will hit the history, yes, but don't think that just because you've heard an MK Ultra podcast before that you've heard the analysis we're going to get into here. A bold statement perhaps, but I'll try my best because I appreciate and value your attention and time. This is a huge episode, our longest yet. I thought about making it two parts, but this should be taken as a single narrative in order to fully grasp its scope and impact. I hope you're ready to cross some bizarre territory. So join me and we'll dive deep into exactly what MKUltra was, what it accomplished, and how we can recognize its legacy and indeed its modus operandi in our current framework of popular entertainment, media, and societal controls. Put on your tinfoil hat because you don't want these buggers in your bonnet. This time on Renegade Files, we go deep on mind control and MK Ultra. MK Ultra. MK Ultra. MK Ultra. MK Ultra. 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 Part one: Beginnings and Evolution. Senator Ted Kennedy, in a statement to the Select Committee on Intelligence in 1977, within a hearing on MKUltra, said, quote, The best safeguard against the abuses in the future is a complete public accounting of abuses of the past. To get some background on the official development of what would become MKUltra, I'm going to read a few excerpts from a history capstone research paper called Project MKUltra and the Search for Mind Control, Clandestine Use of LSD Within the CIA, written in 2016 by Tanny M. Linville and cited in the show notes in accordance with Cedarville University's citation policy. I also put a link to the full paper so you can read that if you wish. So, from that document... In the nine months following the Watergate scandal and the resignation of Richard Nixon from the presidency, the newly appointed Vice President Gerald Ford became the President of the United States, with rumors circulating that the Central Intelligence Agency had involvement in the Democratic National Committee break-in and cover-up. The Rockefeller Commission was created to investigate the CIA and potential negligence. To lead their own investigation of the agency, the United States Senate, in January of 1975, formed the Select Committee to Study Government Operations with Respect to Intelligence Activities, also known as the Church Committee. In February, the Nedzi Committee, later renamed the Pike Committee, was created in the House. Senator Frank Church and Representative Otis Pike led the committees in investigations of the CIA as well as the intelligence community. The committees found more than they bargained for when they uncovered a covert operation within the CIA which tested various drugs on witting and unwitting U.S. civilians in an attempt to discover a wide range of spy tactics. This Cold War-driven plot elicited the help of psychologists, physicians, college professors, and intelligence agents alike to experiment new procedures in the field of behavioral modification. 
From 1953 to 1964, the CIA engaged in various clandestine operations to manipulate the human mind. With the relatively new discovery of LSD, scientists around the world became interested in its ability to be used for both defensive and offensive measures in the interest of national security. Minimal documentation was kept on the extent of the research conducted on the manipulation of the human mind. In the years following the termination of the program, documentation of MKUltra was destroyed. An analysis of historical evidence has proven difficult to pinpoint an exact reason for this action. Those involved claim the decision was made in an attempt to prevent misunderstanding. However, the secrecy that has followed suggests otherwise. Okay, so just as a side note, what they're talking about here is Richard Helms shredding the evidence and don't worry, we'll get into that. So back to the paper. While the MKUltra program ran for a relatively short amount of time, the CIA and other government agencies were researching behavioral modification during the years following World War II. The intelligence agents, physicians, researchers, and others involved in the MKUltra experiments were in direct violation of ethical codes previously set in place prior to the program, including the Hippocratic Oath, U.S. Constitution, Nuremberg Code, and the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. Okay. So that's it from the research paper for now. We might refer back to it later in other sections as we go on. As far as the MK Ultra program goes, this paper sort of starts at the end, but that's because it tells us how we, that is the public, found out about it. After Watergate, people were all riled up to find out what other carry-on these big government agencies were getting up to, and the panels that convened found a whole bunch of scandalous activity. The way it developed was this. MKUltra emerged in the era of CIA Director Alan Dulles and ended on the watch of Director Richard Helms, who both had hands in, at least, helping to muddy the waters of the JFK assassination and at most were involved in a wholesale cover-up of the entire thing. Possibly. At the CIA between Dulles and Helms, we also have John McCone and Vice Admiral William Rayborn. Their names don't come up much in the exploration of MKUltra, mostly because Dulles was there when it started and Helms was there when it ended. And the middle part where McCone and Rayborn were taking the helm falls into the category of most of those documents that were destroyed in the end. CIA files uncovered in 1998 revealed that Helms employed psychological warfare expert George Joannides, who financed anti-Castro-Cuban exile students in Miami to publish anti-Castro propaganda with a CIA budget of $25,000 a month. When Kennedy was killed, these same students, using CIA funds from Joannides, published a special edition of their newspaper proclaiming that Lee Harvey Oswald had acted under orders from Castro. This was the first concerted media effort to spin the circumstances surrounding Kennedy's death, and it was paid for through Richard Helms's budget. MKUltra began as Project Bluebird, and the goal there was to try to see if hypnosis 
and other mind manipulation techniques could be used to mentally arm soldiers so they could resist interrogation at enemy hands. Project Bluebird evolved into Project Artichoke, which focused on some of the same mind-altering methods with the goals of creating mind-controlled assassins. This was a mind-control program that combined intelligence from the Army, Navy, Air Force, and FBI. So Project Artichoke was the CIA combining all of the mind control studies being done by these other branches of the military and their intelligence departments. In a memo dated January 1952, the CIA asked, quote, Can we get control of an individual to the point where he will do our bidding against his will and even against fundamental laws of nature, such as self-preservation? That question became the mission for Project Artichoke. They started using LSD, hypnosis, and total isolation as forms of psychological harassment for special interrogations on human subjects. They used cocaine, marijuana, heroin, peyote, and mescaline, but they increasingly saw LSD as the most promising drug. That's the basics of how we arrived at the CIA project known as MKUltra. The name MKUltra is what's called a CIA cryptonym. Cryptonyms sometimes contain a two-character prefix called a digraph, which designates a geographical or functional area. In the case of MKUltra, MK is the digraph that refers to the CIA Technical Services Division. So MK doesn't stand for mind control as some have speculated. The suffix ultra is thought to refer to a high tier of secrecy or compartmentalization. Part 2. How we know what we know. We talked some about the culture of paranoia within the government caused by the Watergate scandal and how that led to a period of intelligence community house cleaning that coincided with some high-level congressional oversight committees digging into their business. Amid this cloak-and-dagger shuffle, the presiding CIA director Richard Helms ordered all MKUltra files destroyed. We may never know how many documents were destroyed, but shredding the vast majority of the records makes a full investigation into MKUltra virtually impossible. But then, in a scene straight out of a spy movie, a clerk gathering documents for a FOIA request came across a bunch of file boxes stacked up in the storage room of a CIA finance office. These boxes had the name MKUltra stenciled on each one. In these boxes were approximately 20,000 documents that had survived the Richard Helms shredding. These documents were fully investigated during the Senate hearings of 1977, the Church Committee, chaired by Idaho Senator Frank Church. The most shocking revelations of the committee included the discovery that Operation MKUltra involved the drugging and torture of unwitting U.S. citizens as part of human experimentation on mind control. Again, from the Project MKUltra and the Search for Mind Control essay. In the aftermath of World War II, as the U.S. national security apparatus was being constructed, 
the leaders of the Central Intelligence Agency would undertake a far-flung and complicated assault on the human mind. In hypnosis and many other fields, scientists would seek CIA approval for the kinds of experiments they would not dare to perform on their own. They would tamper with many minds and inevitably cause some to be damaged. In the end, they would minimize and hide their deeds, and they would live to see doubts raised about the mental health of their own minds. Stephen Kinzer was a Central American correspondent for the New York Times for over 20 years and the author of the book, Poisoner-in-Chief, Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA Search for Mind Control. So let's dive into some of what Kinzer's book tells us about the early days of MKUltra. Sidney Gottlieb was a chemist hired by the CIA in 1951 to be the head of their chemistry department. Mainly what he did in this capacity was develop various poisons for CIA use. The CIA at that time believed the Soviets had developed methods for mind control, and they thought these methods involved some kinds of drugs, so chemistry, and the related fields of psychoactive substances, and this became a focus for their research. So Gottlieb, the chemist and poison expert, was appointed by then-CIA director Alan Dulles in 1953 to run the covert MKUltra program. Now, the fact that Gottlieb was a brilliant pharmacist and chemist was only a prologue to his real contribution to MKUltra. He was, first and foremost, a scientist. So when he was tasked to develop this CIA side hustle into mind control, he went about it in a very scientific manner. He deduced that in order to control a person's mind, and that is in broad general terms, to get them to make decisions that you want them to make, and to disregard a whole litany of other possible decisions like common sense, logic, morality, and on and on, that in order to effectively take control of someone's mind, you had to first destroy the rational mind that was already in place. So from the very onset, MKUltra was not just a program designed to learn how to control a mind, but first, how to destroy a rational mind. So a second scientific question Gottlieb asked was, in this pursuit, who already knows how to do that? This too is a very scientific approach, right? What sources of information are already out there on the subject of this new initiative we're being tasked with? What Gottlieb discovered in his research was that the top men in the field would have been former Nazi operatives and their Japanese counterparts. So essentially, what we would consider the bad guys of World War II. So within the framework of Operation Paperclip, which we all know as the same program that Nazi rocket scientists were gleaned from the ranks of the German military and brought to the U.S. to help create NASA, Again, not a conspiracy theory, but conspiracy fact. Within this, we have Gottlieb being introduced to and working with some of these former Nazi mind control officers. At the same time, Gottlieb is sent on a sort of mind control world tour, where he travels to CIA-operated facilities in Germany, the Philippines, and Japan. And in these places, he is given access to what amounted to CIA prisoners. So people like captured spies or suspected double agents, 
detained political rivals. Who knows? People that the CIA had marked as expendables, which is a title that I can assure you no one wants. Now, this isn't a graphic episode about all the horrors of MKUltra, but let's just take a glimpse into one type of experiment we know Gottlieb to have done at one of these facilities in Germany. This does get a bit dark, but we'll just stick to the facts. Said subject would be restrained in a deprivation tank. A deprivation tank is a closed capsule where a person is suspended in super high salinity solution so that they easily float. The temperature of this liquid is equal to their body temperature. It's totally dark and utterly silent. So you can't feel anything, see anything, or hear anything. That alone could easily drive someone mad pretty quickly, especially someone today who's used to constant stimulation. In that state of total sensory deprivation, the only option is the mind's eye and the imagination. And, well, you get it. So what Gottlieb would do is restrain someone in one of these tanks after administering to them high doses of methamphetamine, so essentially speed, so that not only are they tied into a tank where they can't see, feel, or hear, but they're drugged with a stimulant that makes them want to run, see, do, build, work, learn, and be overly stimulated with activity. After a few hours in that state, they would be given a deep tranquilizer that would induce rapid and deep sleep. In between the hyperactivity speed phase and the deep sleep phase, which would be a period of about one and a half hours of coming down and then passing out, they would be dosed with a hero's dose of LSD. Remember, they're still in the tank. They can't see, hear, or feel anything external. It was their brain waves and motor function activity in this interim that were studied. Upon being taken out of the tank, they were then subjected to hypnosis sessions to see if the experimenters had actually achieved anything in the blank state and created something they could work upon. And this is just one example of the things that we know they did. And to be perfectly clear, Stephen Kenzer contends in his book, Poisoner-in-Chief, Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA Search for Mind Control, that these were nothing more than a continuation of the experiments conducted in the Nazi Germany concentration camps. And this was the homework Gottlieb did on his trip abroad to learn from the former Nazi mind control experts in preparation for his return to the States to set up the US-based MKUltra gig. So eventually, Sidney Gottlieb returns to commute to DC from his cabin in the Virginia woods where he, ironically, lived a peaceful life, grew his own vegetables, raised goats, meditated, and studied Buddhism. I think it was his love of the freedom America had given him to live that way which allowed him to justify the horrible things he ended up doing. It's just a guess, but because he saw himself as fighting against Soviet communism that had the potential to threaten that freedom for everyone, he was able to compartmentalize his life and do these horrible things. He was helping his government to learn how to control the minds of soldiers so they could resist cracking if they were captured. 
Ori was helping them to create assassins to kill real monsters like Castro and the like. I'm not saying he was right. The entire thing is twisted and insane, when we haven't even gotten deeply into it yet, so let's keep going. Gottlieb then returns stateside to build MKUltra. He becomes fascinated by the results he was able to obtain abroad through the application of LSD. LSD is colorless, tasteless, odorless, and is dosed in very minuscule amounts. For Gottlieb, this was covert mind control gold. LSD had only recently been discovered. The public had never heard of it. It was first synthesized in 1938 by the Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman in the Sandoz Laboratories in Basel, Switzerland. This becomes important and it's why I mention it. Sandoz is now called Novartis. But it wasn't until five years later, in 1943, that the psychedelic properties were found when Hoffman accidentally licked his finger or something after stoppering a vial of the stuff, then went home to write his psychedelic visions in his journal. He figured out what he thought had caused them, so three days later he took a quarter of a milligram on purpose before taking his now famous bike ride. But all that is another episode. So Gottlieb convinces the CIA through MKUltra to buy the entire Sandoz Lab stockpile of LSD for something like $240,000, which is a lot of money now and was a crazy amount in the early 1950s. This was done to not only give the CIA control of the substance for their own experiments, but to keep it out of the hands of the Soviets or anyone else who might want to try their hand in this mind control game. The purchase gave the CIA ownership of what was, at that time, the world's entire supply of LSD. Some of the former Nazi torture scientists Gottlieb had done hands-on training with abroad were then brought into the U.S. by the CIA and employed as military consultants at Fort Detrick in Maryland, which was the center of the MKUltra program. Another facility connected to all this is Edgewood Arsenal, also in Maryland, which was home to U.S. military chemical warfare manufacturing and also where Frank Zappa's father worked. And to go down that whole anti-war music industry, hippie culture, false flag theory, be sure to listen to one of our most downloaded episodes ever, Renegade Files Episode 7, The Laurel Canyon Conspiracy Theory. One of my favorites. So American bacteriologist, biological warfare scientist, and employee of the U.S. Army Biological Warfare Laboratories, Frank Olson, was transferred from Fort Detrick to Edgewood Arsenal and became a part of a secret biological warfare program. He was involved in all kinds of unsavory projects. Like he worked with Operation Paperclip Nazi scientists to learn how to create and deploy aerosolized anthrax. Jeez Louise. He was discharged from the army in 1994, but he remained at Dietrich and then Edgewood as an independent civilian contractor. So that has like sheep dip vibes, right? Along the way, he oversaw a collection of some pretty disturbing experiments, such as one where they released an airborne bacteria into the air along the San Francisco coast so it would be inhaled by and infect the population there. Then would their scientists, later stationed in area hospitals, would study the effects of this dangerous bacteria on the lungs of the people. This was called Operation Sea Spray. 
Here is the documented and verified description. Operation Sea Spray was a 1950 U.S. Navy secret biological warfare experiment in which Serratia marcasins and Bacillus globligi bacteria were sprayed over the San Francisco Bay Area in California in order to determine how vulnerable a coastal city like San Francisco may be to a bioweapon attack. This is the kind of thing I think about when people seriously question if the government would perpetrate a false flag shooting or blow up a building to advance some legislative agenda. Really? They also conducted experiments where they would subject caged dogs to prolonged exposure of poisonous gases to see how long they could take it. Nice guys doing this. And this is all documented and proven. The secret biological warfare program Frank Olson was working with was then integrated into MKUltra. And this is when Olson gets employed by the CIA and gets quickly mixed up in that whole thing, and we'll come back to him soon. Parallel to Frank Olson's transition into an MKUltra operative, Gottlieb sets up a CIA front in the form of a medical foundation that rolled out a program to finance hospitals across the country in a project that would seek out volunteers to take LSD and then be analyzed by the hospital, who would then return the results to the medical foundation that was really the CIA. But the hospitals didn't know that, nor did the subjects of the experiments. But the test subjects did do this voluntarily, and they did know they were going into a psychoactive substance experiment. One of the test subjects was Ken Kesey, who went on to write One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and to become a counterculture advocate for the mind-expanding aspects of LSD. Other subjects were Allen Ginsberg and the Grateful Dead lyricist Robert Hunter. Speaking of the Grateful Dead on acid, Owsley Stanley, also known as Bear, who was the Dead's legendary sound engineer and rumored MKUltra collaborator, synthesized by his own admission, what amounts to 5 million hits of LSD, most of it given away for free at Grateful Dead shows, as well as tours of Jefferson Airplane and others. He was the main acid supplier to Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters. Stanley, by the way, came from a deep political family in Kentucky. His father was a government attorney, and his grandfather was a state representative, then governor of Kentucky. Then he was a senator. But MKUltra wasn't all hippie music and acid-tripping bus ride road trips. They also dosed seven guys in a prison with ten times the normal dose of acid every day for three months in a row without telling them, just to see what would happen. Thanks a lot. Some have suggested that the Unabomber Ted Kaczynski was an MKUltra test subject, because while at Harvard he was involved in a psychological experiment wherein he was given irrational performance reviews of his Harvard classwork to induce trauma. In his second year at Harvard, Kaczynski participated in a study described by author Alston Chase as, quote, purposefully brutalizing psychological experiment led by Harvard psychologist Henry Murray. Subjects were told they would debate personal philosophy with a fellow student and were asked to write essays detailing their personal beliefs and aspirations. The essays were given to an anonymous individual who would confront and belittle the subject in what Murray himself called vehement, sweeping, and personally abusive attacks, using the content of the essays as ammunition. 
Electrodes monitored the subject's physiological reactions. These encounters were filmed and the subject's expressions of anger and rage were later played back to them repeatedly. The experiment lasted three years, with someone verbally abusing and humiliating Kaczynski each week. Some scholars have also suggested that this experience may have motivated Ted Kaczynski's criminal activities. He went on to become the Unabomber. Did you ever hear about that when you saw a story about the Unabomber on a TV news show? No. What you hear is that he was a smart guy who lost it, went to live off-grid in a little cabin in the woods, and sent bombs to people in some vaguely misunderstood revenge scheme. Kaczynski spent 200 hours as part of that study. His lawyers later attributed his hostility towards mind control techniques to his participation in Murray's study. No kidding. So who was this Professor Murray who conducted the experiments on Kaczynski? During the Second World War, Murray had worked with the Office of Strategic Services, a U.S. intelligence agency often referred to as the predecessor to the CIA, where he conducted psychological experiments. Some sources have suggested that Murray's experiments were part of Project MKUltra, or became MKUltra, According to Stephen Kinzer, who has done way more research into this than I have, the experiments performed on Ted Kaczynski, who would become the Unabomber, were never connected to MKUltra, at least that he could find. But he also does admit that since so much of the MKUltra documents were destroyed, there's no way to know for sure either way. Beyond that, Gottlieb and MKUltra conducted LSD mind control studies on hundreds of patients, both with and without their knowledge, and Gottlieb wasn't interested in the mind-expanding or consciousness revolution aspects of normal LSD use. That got hijacked by the guys traveling and writing songs for the Grateful Dead, or by Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters. Gottlieb was interested in whether or not huge doses of LSD could be used to break down and essentially erase a person's mind so that a controlled, suggestive, mind-controlled narrative could then be installed in its place to make whatever the CIA wanted. A spy or an assassin who would forget the details of their mission if captured. And remember, this is the exact mission of Project Artichoke. So, we see how these programs never really go away. They just get rebranded and expanded. Another person whom we know was used as an MKUltra test victim was notorious Boston gangster, hitman Whitey Bulger. Bulger was arrested at 20 and sent to a federal penitentiary in Atlanta. While there, he came into contact with a doctor named Pfeiffer, who was an MKUltra subcontractor. Over a period of a year, while in prison, Bulger was given huge doses of LSD then monitored and interviewed, and the results were sent to Gottlieb in Washington. Bulger went on to kill many people as a gangster in Boston. So this was an era of very little oversight into the intelligence community, if any at all, and MKUltra was secretive even within the CIA, and they did control the world's supply of LSD, or for a while they did, so they just started dosing people almost wholesale to see what would happen. MKUltra operatives would dose other CIA agents without their knowledge. 
The idea being, they wanted to see how a spy would react if they were slipped the stuff by an enemy without knowing. So they would set guys up. For instance, in the experiment called Midnight Climax, <laughs> where they would pay prostitutes to solicit unsuspecting CIA agents, or sometimes just guys off the street, and then the prostitutes would take them to hotel rooms controlled by the CIA, where they had two-way mirrors installed, and CIA agents would watch the activities between the hooker and the dose John. And while this was happening, the prostitutes would try to ask the agents about certain state secrets or intelligence community activities to see if the LSD-dosed targets would spill the beans. This took place in San Francisco. And this brings us back to Frank Olson, who we were talking about earlier. Olson was unknowingly slipped a large dose of LSD at a retreat at a cabin in the Virginia mountains. This was an outing where several of the men in his department went out into the woods for a weekend to smoke cigars, drink whiskey, and get away from work. At some point, the men who had concocted this told Olson and a few others that they had been given a dose of a substance that was being researched as a truth serum. Olson was not only understandably angry about this, but he was adversely affected by the LSD for days following the incident. He complained of various mental ailments, and it seems like all of the shady and actually horrific things he had done to so many people in the past, remember to the dogs, spraying San Francisco with bacteria, all that, seemed like it came back to haunt him. He told his wife that he felt like he had made a terrible mistake, but she never found out precisely what he meant. For days after that trip, he complained to colleagues about the experience, and he was very vocal with his disappointment in the whole affair. He met with his superiors back at headquarters and he tried to quit, but they convinced him not to. They arranged for him to travel to New York to meet with a CIA doctor as part of the psychiatric help Olson had requested following the dosing incident. Olson told his wife he was traveling for this treatment and he flew to New York with his boss and Gottlieb's deputy, Dr. Robert Lashbrook. Lashbrook was the man who had dosed him at the cabin and they stayed on the 10th floor of the Pennsylvania Hotel. Four days later, Olson landed on the sidewalk in his underwear at 2 a.m. He was barely alive, mumbled something to the hotel night manager who rushed to his side, and he later died in the hospital. Olson had flown through a closed window in the dark through the curtains and a shade, breaking the window and falling to his very soon death police found Robert Lashbrook sitting in the bathroom with his face in his hands in the room he was sharing or had been sharing with Olson. Lashbrook told the police he had been awakened by a noise. The police asked him the name of the man who had jumped and Lashbrook told them it was Frank Olson. The official cause of death was ruled a suicide. In response to this finding, the night manager of the Statler Hotel is quoted as saying, in all my years in the hotel business, I've never encountered a case where someone got up in the middle of the night, ran across a dark room in his underwear, avoiding two beds, and dove through a closed window with the shade and curtains drawn. The investigating police officers were exiting the lobby when the night manager had a hunch and asked the hotel telephone operator if there had been any recent calls to or from room 1018A. 
she told them that there had been one and that she had overheard, through the switchboard, a call placed from the room to a number on Long Island. The hotel operator said that the caller had said, quote, well, he's gone. And the person in Long Island had replied, well, that's too bad. The phone number called was listed to Dr. Harold Abramson, a distinguished physician, an LSD expert, and a CIA medical consultant. It appears that Olson's death was systematically covered up in an orchestrated and proactive way that included three parts. Part one, persuade the New York police to not investigate the case while helping to mislead the press. Part two, create a false career legend for Lashbrook, the only witness that would erase any publicly known connection he had with the CIA. And part three, inform, placate, and ensure the cooperation of the Olson family. This plot is outlined in detail in an article from The Guardian called From Mind Control to Murder, How a Deadly Fall Revealed the CIA's Darkest Secrets, written by Stephen Kinzer. According to internal reports, the CIA then sent someone called Agent James McSee to clean up the hotel room in New York. This agent met Lashbrook there, and they did whatever they did to the room after Olson's death. And if there was ever any evidence in there beyond Lashbrook's word, it was gone after that. And James McSee, by the way, was later identified as James McCord, and he was one of the Watergate burglars. Olson's survivors signed away their rights to legal action against the CIA as part of a $750,000 settlement in 1975, and they say that's about a million bucks today. Olson's death was one of many that surely occurred as direct results of MKUltra. Gottlieb also worked through his MKUltra connections with Operation Mongoose, which was a President Eisenhower-approved plot to kill Castro under the direction of CIA Directorate for Plans Richard Bissell. For this effort, Gottlieb proposed a number of cartoonish ideas, including covertly gassing Fidel Castro's media studio with LSD, Batman villain style, also saturating Castro's shoes with thallium to make his beard fall out, and killing Castro with such devices as a poisoned cigar, a poisoned wetsuit, and an exploding conch shell. Also, a poisonous fountain pen is in there somewhere. Gottlieb also played a role in the CIA's attempt to assassinate Prime Minister Patrice Lumumba of the Congo. And I've heard that said and spelled different ways, but Gottlieb himself took a vial of poison to the Congo with plans to place it on Lumumba's toothbrush in the summer of 1960. The Prime Minister was killed in a military coup before they could get to his toothbrush, though. Oh well, they tried. In the end, Gottlieb retired and ultimately concluded that LSD's effects are far too unpredictable to ever be used reliably for mind control. Different people had such widely different reactions and experiences that it was impossible to get repeatable results. His MKUltra experiments intended to do two things. 
Part 1 to learn how to destroy and obliterate a person's natural logical mind. Then Part 2 install a new and managed mind into that person to make them impervious to torture or make them a mind-controlled assassin. They say they never accomplished Part 2, but we know they succeeded in accomplishing Part 1 with hundreds of test subjects that we know of and realistically thousands. Alright, let's take a short break here to assess where we are and what we need to do to move ahead. So, after all of this information, what do we know? Well, first of all, and I think this is something that's far more important than it may seem with a casual glance, and that's the fact that this subject, as a whole, is unique among cultural observers and free-thinking researchers, so unique in the conspiracy sphere, in that it is not a theory. We know this happened 100%. I said it before. In fact, it was probably way more devious and widespread than we know since so many of the documents concerning these programs were destroyed. The majority were destroyed. Even with that being the case, what little we do know is shocking, to say the least. So with that in mind, what I mean when I say that this whole MK Ultra subject is more important than it might seem on the surface is the fact that even though this is a fully verifiable fact, MKUltra was totally real. They had congressional hearings about it in the 70s. Lawmakers testified about the atrocities. Executive orders were passed to stop future mind control experiments being conducted on people who didn't know they were being tested. But even with all of those facts, legitimate researchers are still widely marginalized and cast as crazy conspiracy theorists for even mentioning the CIA cryptonym MKUltra. Start talking about MKUltra around the normies and you instantly get put into the crazy conspiracy theorist box. But the subject is the absolute opposite of a theory. It's a fact. Do you see my point here? I know you do. It just blows my mind. Okay, maybe a bad expression to use there, but it does. Not only do we know this was a real thing, but as part of the mainstream's insistence on casting anyone discussing MKUltra as a crackpot, we often encounter this notion that MKUltra was perpetuated by a rogue group of CIA agents, some out-of-control side group that no one really knew about in the agency. This is preposterous. This was top-down from the director of the CIA, actually spanning four directors of the CIA with the last of those involved ordering the destruction of every record even mentioning the program. If it weren't for some misplaced files mistakenly stored in the wrong department, we would have never even known a single thing about this. So the real and final question becomes, does it endure? And if so, what does it look like today? We knew MK Ultra was a deep dive episode going into this. And in the next three sections, we'll get into the question of whether or not MKUltra actually went away when it was officially dissolved in 1973. So far, everything we've covered is fully documented and not in dispute. But as we dive further into the subjects of what programs may have come after MKUltra, or what's going on now, we get into some situations of just plain shady sources. Not to say they aren't credible, but... Put on your tinfoil hat again, because this gets weird. One of the resources here is an essay called Project Monarch, Nazi Mind Control and the Evolution of Project MKUltra, written by Ron Patton. 
This gets bananas, but it's necessary background for moving deeper. So we'll go over the important parts of that piece. The next document we'll examine comes in the form of the transcript from a lecture given by a psychologist to a group of therapeutic psychologists and psychiatrists on the subject of multiple personality disorder or MPD and the things he discovered in a high percentage of his patients over a long period of time studying the MPD phenomenon. Multiple personality disorder, I've been told, has now been rebranded as disassociative identity disorder. And I'm not even going to try to keep up with the political correctness of disorder terminology within the mental health profession. Whatever we call such mental issues, anyone experiencing such a condition has my deepest empathy and compassion. After that, we'll look at some modern evidence of mind control programming, where we search for the fingerprints of MKUltra in things like celebrity glitches and other weird cultural situations. Alright, let's go. Part 3. The Patent Essay First up, as we look into the question of MKUltra surviving, is the essay Project Monarch Nazi Mind Control and the Evolution of Project MKUltra, written by Ron Patton. This essay has bounced around the internet for a while, and the original website is gone, but you can still find it if you dig. I don't know the exact date it was written, but I know it was written sometime after 1995, because that's the latest date referenced in the footnotes as a source he cited in the article. The author, Ron Patton, is a conspiracy researcher, writer, executive editor of Paranoia, The Conspiracy Reader, and he is the executive producer or an executive producer of the nationally syndicated radio show Ground Zero with Clyde Lewis. Ground Zero with Clyde Lewis is a cool show on AM radio in the middle of the night. He also has a website. Check it out. Cool stuff. So what does Ron Patton tell us in this essay? To put it plainly, a lot. I'd say the document is about 10,000 words, and there's no need to read it word for word, but I'll give you the good stuff. Like I said, this gets weird, but that's what we do. So, where does Patton get the information in his report? Here's a direct quote from the introduction. This exposition is substantiated by declassified U.S. government documents, individuals formerly connected to the U.S. intelligence communities, historical writings, researchers knowledgeable in mind control, publications from mental health practitioners, and interviews taken from survivors unwittingly subjected to a highly complex form of trauma-based mind control known as monarch programming. Okay, so right away when we start to look into whether or not MKUltra still exists, we find a new project called Monarch. This falls in line with what we concluded very early on, which is this idea that these clandestine operations never really go away. They just change names and evolve. Not that we can conclude anything that solid so soon into this essay, but it's interesting that we have this new name right up front. Also, it's worth noting that the idea of monarch programming was initially introduced to many researchers through this document. Also, a book written by a woman who claims to have been a victim, which is referenced in this document as well. So back to the report. Patton concludes his introduction by saying, quote, 
a word of caution for survivors of intensely systematic mind control and or some form of ritualized abuse. There are numerous triggers in this article. It is therefore recommended not to read it unless appropriate support systems are in place or if you have a thoroughly reintegrated personality. End quote. And I guess that would be a wise disclaimer for this episode too, or at least this section of this episode, and the subjects and words we are going to cover as we move ahead. So, please take care of yourself and your mind first and foremost. And if that means not subjecting yourself to what could be considered monarch programming triggers, if you know or suspect that to be a real part of your past, skip now to the next Renegade Files episode. So Patton gives us a brief history of mind control from the ancient Egyptians through 19th century England, so we can skip that. I will give you two sentences from the end of that section because I feel like it explains the Illuminati in one of the most succinct ways I've ever found. Patton tells us here that, quote, In 1776, a Bavarian Jesuit by the name of Adam Weishaupt was commissioned by the House of Rothschild to centralize the power base of the mystery religions into what is commonly known as the Illuminati, meaning enlightened ones. This was an amalgamation of powerful occult bloodlines, elite secret societies, and influential Masonic fraternities with the desire to construct the framework for a new world order. The outward goal of this utopia was to bring forth universal happiness to the human race. However, their underlying intention was to gradually increase control over the masses, thus becoming masters of the planet. Moving through the report, we come to the next landmark when we read, The Tavistock Institute of Human Relations was set up in London in 1921, to study the breaking point of humans. Kurt Lewin, a German psychologist, became the director of the Tavistock Institute in 1932, about the same time Nazi Germany was increasing its research into neuropsychology, parapsychology, and multi-generational occultism. After World War II, the U.S. Department of Defense secretly imported many of the top German Nazi and Italian fascist scientists and spies into the United States via South America and the Vatican. The codename for this operation was Paperclip. Once again, not a theory. Then Patton describes in detail how Project Bluebird became Artichoke, which became MKUltra, and we've gone over all that. At the end of this project evolution analysis, we find the first references to Monarch when we read, quote, A special procedure designated MK Delta was established to govern the use of MK Ultra abroad. MK Ultra and MK Delta materials were used for harassment, discrediting, or disabling purposes. There were 149 sub projects listed under the umbrella of MK Ultra. Project Monarch has not been officially identified by any government documentation as one of the corresponding sub-projects, but it is used, rather, as a descriptive catchphrase by survivors, therapists, and possible insiders. Monarch may in fact have culminated from MK Search sub-projects such as Operation Spellbinder, which was set up to create sleeper assassins, 
so Manchurian candidates, who could be activated upon receiving a keyword or phrase while in a post-hypnotic trance. Operation Often, a study which attempted to harness the power of occultic forces, was possibly one of several cover programs to hide the insidious reality of Project Monarch. End quote. So we learn here that MKUltra consisted of 149 sub-projects. This is a crucial discovery because it points to the depth and scope of MKUltra that we are missing due to most of those files being shredded by Helms. It also tells us that Project Monarch has yet to be officially identified by any government documentation, but that it is a term we've learned from survivors, therapists, and insiders. We'll get to the therapist part in the next section, and we'll dive into a lecture by a psychologist. It's interesting. So at this point, we can say correctly that Project Monarch is an actual conspiracy theory. Also from the report, Monarch programming, we read here, is also referred to as marionette syndrome, or imperial conditioning, and some mental health therapists refer to this as conditioned stimulus response sequences. And I want you to think about what that means. It's very literal. Conditioned stimulus response sequences. Think of that in terms of programming. One last note here is that in discussions of multiple personality disorder, the multiple personalities within an individual are called alters. A-L-T-E-R-S. I never knew that. Okay, that's the background. Buckle up. From the essay. Project Monarch could best be described as a form of structured disassociation and occult integration in order to compartmentalize the mind into multiple personalities within a systematic framework. During this process, a satanic ritual, usually including Kabbalistic mysticism, is performed with the purpose of attaching a particular demon or group of demons to the corresponding altars. Of course, most skeptics would view this as simply a means to enhance trauma within the victim negating any irrational belief that demonic possession actually occurs. End quote. So the debate here is whether or not these monarch victims are actually being possessed by a demon or a group of demons, or is that just another part of the hypnotic programming designed to enhance the impact of it all? First of all, does it really matter which it is? And secondly, the fact that skeptics and believers are even having that conversation is bananas. Oh no, they're not really being possessed by a demon. They're just being hypnotically brainwashed to believe they are. So nothing crazy going on there, man. This is totally normal stuff. <laughs> right? So the report tells us that these monarch programmed victims are used for all kinds of things like undercover operations, prostitution, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but what if this does? And for whatever reason... The involvement of monarch programmed victims in the entertainment industry is notable. Now, remember that monarch is the theorized continuation of MKUltra, or a theorized sub-project of it. So with the idea that these monarch mind control subjects have a notable presence in the entertainment industry, if we can learn something about the ways this programming works, we can start to look for its clues in what we see in that part of the media. Once again, 
directly from this report, we read, There are an inordinate amount of alters in the victim-survivor with numerous backup programs, mirrors, and shadows. A division of light-side, good, and dark-side, bad, alters are interwoven in the mind and rotate on an axis, one of the main internal structures, of which there are many, within the system is shaped like a double helix consisting of seven levels. Each system has an internal programmer which oversees the gatekeeper who grant or deny entry into the different rooms. A few of the internal images predominantly seen by victims and survivors are trees, the tree of life, the infinity symbol, ancient symbols and letters, spider webs, broken mirrors, glass breaking, masks, castles, mazes, demons, monsters, aliens, seashells, butterflies, snakes, ribbons, bows, flowers, hourglasses, clocks, robots, chain of command diagrams, and schematics of computer circuitry boards. A lot of this becomes important when we get to that lecture by the clinical psychological therapist, so hang in there. And okay, I get it. That's a pretty wide list of imagery, and you could probably find one of those things in almost every movie or TV show ever made, and none of it would be conclusive. But I think what we have to keep in mind here is context. What and how and when do these things show up in TV, movies, music videos, and all that, right? I'm certainly no expert on sifting through those things, but it's a topic I've been interested in for a while, more and more lately. Probably a good person to ask would be Isaac from the Occult Symbolism and Pop Culture with Isaac Weishaupt podcast. Check his show out if you haven't. The next part of the patent essay concerns bloodlines and twinning. This gets pretty dark, so we'll just hit the highlights here. So quoting, A majority of the victims and survivors come from multi-generational satanic families, bloodlines, and are ostensibly programmed to fill their destiny as the chosen ones or chosen generations. These terms were coined by Mangala at Auschwitz. Some are adopted out to families of similar origin. Others used in this neurological nightmare are deemed as the expendable ones or non-bloodliners, usually coming from orphanages, foster care homes, or other more negative situations I'm not going to go into here. If you want all the details, you can read the entire essay in the Dark Intel Files on Patreon. So back to it. There also appears to be a pattern of family members affiliated with government or military intelligence agencies. Many of the abused come from families who use Catholicism, Mormonism, or charismatic Christianity as a front for their abominable activities, though members of other religious groups are also involved. Victims and survivors generally respond more readily to a rigid, religious, dogmatic, legalistic, hierarchical structure because it parallels their base programming. Authority usually goes unchallenged as their will has been usurped through subjective and command-oriented conditioning. 
physical identification characteristics on victims and survivors include multiple electronic prod scars and or resultant moles on their skin. A few may have had various parts of their bodies mutilated by knives, branding irons or needles. Butterfly or occult tattoos are also common. Generally, bloodliners are less likely to have these subsequent markings as their skin is to remain pure and unblemished. The ultimate purpose of the sophisticated manipulation of these individuals may sound unrealistic, depending on our interpretive understanding of the physical and spiritual realms. The deepest and darkest altars within bloodliners are purported to be dormant until the Antichrist is revealed. Okay, end quote. I told you this was crazy, <laughs> right? So moving on. This New World Order altar supposedly contained callback orders and instructions to train and or initiate a large influx of people, possibly clones or soulless ones, thereby stimulating social control programs into the new millennium. Non-biological twinning is yet another bizarre feature observed within monarch programming. For instance, Two young non-related children would be ceremoniously initiated in a magical soul-bonding ritual so they might be inseparably paired for eternity. This is possibly another Mangala connection. They essentially shared two halves of the programmed information, making them interdependent upon one another. Paranormal phenomenon such as astral projection, telepathy, ESP, etc., appear to be more pronounced between those who have undergone this process. End quote. This brings us to what are known as the levels of monarch programming. We'll go over each level with short definitions, and it's all kind of self-explanatory. So according to the essay, the levels of monarch programming are alpha, regarded as general or regular programming within the base control personality, accomplished through deliberately subdividing the victim's personality, which, in essence, causes a left-brain-right-brain division, allowing for a program union of the left and right through neuron pathway stimulation. Beta, referred to as sexual programming. This programming eliminates all learned moral convictions and stimulates the primitive sexual instinct, devoid of inhibitions. Delta, this is known as killer programming, originally developed for training special agents or elite soldiers. Subjects are devoid of fear, very systematic in carrying out their assignment. Self-destruct or suicide instructions are layered in at this level. Theta, considered the psychic programming. Bloodliners, those coming from multi-generational satanic families, were determined to exhibit a greater propensity for having telepathic abilities than did non-bloodliners. Due to its evident limitations, however, various forms of electronic mind control systems were developed and introduced, namely biomedical human telemetry devices or brain implants, directed energy lasers using microwaves and or electromagnetics. It is reported that these are used in conjunction with highly advanced computers and sophisticated satellite tracking systems. Omega, a self-destruct form of programming, also known as Code Green. The corresponding behaviors include suicidal tendencies, 
and or self-mutilation. This program is generally activated when the victim survivor begins therapy or interrogation and too much memory is being recovered. And finally, gamma. Another form of system protection is through deception programming, which elicits misinformation and misdirection. This level is intertwined with demonology and tends to regenerate itself at a later time if inappropriately deactivated. So that's the end of uh, the direct quotes from the essay at this point. So this gets really interesting because as we learn about these levels, we realize that the mind-controlled victims have been coded with layers of programs that do amazing things, like instigate suicide if a therapist gets too close to unraveling all of the alters or healing the patients. It's insidious. Okay, the rest of that essay goes on into the methods and procedures in a section about a book written by a person who says they're a survivor of all of this, but those details aren't critical here. The gist of it is that they use systematic levels of applied trauma to basically create someone with multiple personalities, and they encode in these various personalities different skills or response reflexes, and they trigger the emergence of these alters, as they're called, with various symbols or words or combinations thereof. The people who have been doing this for generations are essentially Satanists connected to the Illuminati, and so we get all this crazy symbolism in pop culture if it's true that pop culture icons are being manipulated in this way. And why would you? And it does seem crazy, but it does look like there's evidence for it. They go so far as to program into the deep layers of personalities of these people a sort of psychological booby trap to trip up psychiatrists that might uncover the altars. And that gets really dangerous, and it leads us into the next part of the episode. Part 4. The Greenbaum Speech The next and final document we'll examine is a transcript from a lecture given by psychologist Dr. D.C. Hammond to a group of therapeutic psychologists and psychiatrists on the subject of what at the time was known as Multiple Personality Disorder, or MPD, which we now call Dissociative Identity Disorder. It was originally entitled Hypnosis in MPD Ritual Abuse, but it's commonly referred to now as the Greenbaum Speech. It was presented at the 4th Annual Eastern Regional Conference on Abuse and Multiple Personality, Thursday, June 25, 1992, at the Radisson Plaza Hotel, Mark Center, Alexandria, Virginia. The transcript lists his credentials as being a BS, an MS, and a PhD in counseling psychology from the University of Utah, plus 13 other designations and accolades that I'm not going to read, and the final of his 14 credentials being that he was, at that time, the president of the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis. So obviously a serious guy and an expert in the field. Now, this is a transcript of him speaking, so it's different than reading a written report. Plus, it's being delivered by an expert clinical psychologist and hypnotist to a group of peers in that space. So it's a little dense. Here again, I'm not going to read it all, but let's go over the highlights. This next section is either quotes or paraphrases, and the general citing is the aforementioned speech. Here we go. In Dr. Hammond's words, 
In Chicago, at the first International Congress, where ritual abuse was talked about, I can remember thinking, how strange and interesting. I can recall many people listening to an example given that somebody thought was so idiosyncratic and rare, and all the people coming up after saying, gee, you're treating one too? You're in Seattle. Well, I'm in Toronto. Well, I'm in Florida. Well, I'm in Cincinnati. I didn't know what to think at that point. It wasn't too long after that I found my first ritual abuse patient in somebody I was already treating and we hadn't gotten that deep yet. Things in that case made me very curious about the use of mind control techniques and hypnosis and other brainwashing techniques, so I started studying brainwashing and some of the literature in that area. Then I decided to do a survey, and from the ISSMPND, International Society for the Study of Multiple Personality and Disassociation folks, I picked out about a dozen and a half therapists that I thought were seeing more of that than probably anyone else around, and I started surveying them. What came out of that was a grasp of a variety of brainwashing methods being used all over the country. I started to hear some similarities, whereas I hadn't known to begin with how widespread things were. I was now getting a feeling that there were a lot of people reporting some similar things and that there must be, to some degree, communication here. And we'll stop reading right there. So what he did is reach out to a few other therapists and he gave them some questions to ask and he didn't want to contaminate their process. So he gave them no answers to expect and I guess from what I can understand in the speech, that the people came back to him saying that their patients responded in the same ways that his had when it comes to them knowing certain phrases and components of ritual systematic abuse designed to create multiple personality disorder. Still with me here? Right. So these clinical psychologists who were studying people with multiple personality disorder all realized that their patients all had repressed components that suggested that their MPD had actually been purposefully and methodically created through ritual abuse and mental programming. The paper goes on to explain the methods they used to distinguish these created MPDs from other forms of the phenomenon. So not every person with MPD was the victim of ritual abuse programming. He goes on to say, so I have gone from someone kind of neutral and not knowing what to think about it all to someone who clearly believes ritual abuse is real and that the people who say it isn't are either naive or they're dirty. End quote. Meaning that they're involved with it, right? I mean, that's how I take it. Again, from the speech and speaking about his patients, if they were raised from birth in a mainstream cult, or if they were non-bloodline person, meaning neither parent was in the cult, but cult people had a lot of access to them in early childhood, they may also have it. I have seen more than one ritual abuse patient who clearly had all the kind of ritual things you hear about. They seemed very genuine. They talked about all the typical things that you hear in this population, but had none of this programming with prolonged extensive checking. So I believe in one case I was personally treating that she was kind of schismatic breakoff that had kind of gone off and done their own thing and were no longer hooked into a mainstream group. Okay, end quote. So here we find his reference to bloodline and non-bloodline cult members. 
And that ties back to the Ron Patton Monarch essay. And when he talks about this one person not having a programming with prolonged extensive checking, what he's talking about is some kind of lifelong or long-term checking up on the mind-controlled victim by the people or person who programmed them. And this gets really creepy. Back to it. The doctor says, quote, Here's where it appears to have come from. At the end of World War II, before it even ended, Alan Dulles and people from our intelligence community were already in Switzerland making contact to get out Nazi scientists. As World War II ends, they not only get out rocket scientists, but they also get out some Nazi doctors who have been doing mind control research in the camps. They brought them to the United States. Along with them was a young boy, a teenager, who had been raised in a Hasidic Jewish tradition and a background of Kabbalistic mysticism that probably appealed to people in the cult because at least by the turn of the century, Alistair Crowley had been introducing Kabbalism into satanic stuff, if not earlier. I suspect it may have formed some bond between them, but he saved his skin by collaborating and being an assistant to them, and in the death camp experiments, they brought him with them. They started doing mind control research for military intelligence in military hospitals in the United States. The people that came, the Nazi doctors, were Satanists. Subsequently, the boy changed his name, Americanized it some, obtained a medical degree, became a physician, and continued his work that appears to be at the center of cult programming today. His name is known to patients throughout the country. And I'm pretty sure he's referring to the person who's known as Dr. Green, whose name was really Dr. Greenbaum. Okay, and, and that's the end of the direct quotes for now. So consider how incredible this is. This is just some psychologist talking to other psychologists about multiple personality patients. And he ends up independently arriving at what we know now are the origins of MKUltra. I'm going to skip over most of the next part, which goes into detail about some of the things the ritual abuse perpetrators do to accomplish this level of mind control. It's mostly done on kids, and I have no tolerance for anything like that. I'll give you a high-level glance so we're on the same page as we move into the next section. You can read that whole speech in the Dark Intel Files on Patreon if you want to. You can find it with a search also. But here are the basics. And all of this is done to break down the person's natural logical responses, split the personality into compartments, create different personalities with different traits, then access each one at your convenience for whatever it is that multi-generational satanic cult mind control groups get up to. For example, they would restrain the person, wire them with electrodes, surround them with a group of onlookers, and then one person would say, you are angry with someone in the group. When the person who is restrained says, no, I'm not, they shock them. Then they say, you are angry with someone in the group, so you are going to cut yourself. When that person says, no, I'm not, they shock them again. They continue this until the person says, yes, okay, I am angry with someone in the group, so I will cut myself. Then they say, we don't believe you, and they shock them again anyway. They would do this in sets of 30 minutes with 5 or 10 minute breaks between and over a total of 3 or more hours. So going away and coming back and doing it all over again until they get nothing but the responses they want. And the one patient who describes this to the doctor here in this speech says 3 times a week. 
These things would be done after something like putting that person into a room with no stimulation for days. So this is essentially driving out any logical reasoning or self-directed thought in a person. It's monstrous to say the least. Again, from the speech, we read, Programming under the influence of drugs in a certain brainwave state and with these noises in one ear and them speaking in the other ear, usually the left ear, associated with right hemisphere non-dominant brain functioning, and with them talking, therefore, and requiring intense concentration, intense focusing, because often they'll have to memorize and say certain things back, word perfect, to avoid punishment, shock, and other kinds of things that are occurring. This is basically how a lot of the programming goes. Some of it will also use other typical brainwashing kinds of techniques. There will be very standardized types of hypnotic things done at times. There will be sensory deprivation, which we know increases suggestibility in anyone. Total sensory deprivation, suggestibility has significantly increased from the research. It's not uncommon for them to use a great deal of that, including formal sensory deprivation chambers before they do certain of these things. End quote. Okay, so the overall point here is that all of this stuff, all of these techniques, and like I said, I'm not going to go into all of the descriptions of the horrible things they do to create multiple personalities in someone on purpose, but the point is that all of these techniques are MK Ultra and Monarch programming techniques. How is it that they show up in these patients with multiple personality disorder who go to a psychologist for help? And by his estimation in the speech, 50% of the patients he sees who have disassociative identity disorder reveal evidence of ritual abuse programming. And in this next section of the speech, we'll see how this is directly tied to MKUltra and Monarch. Before we go on, recall the previous essay by Ron Patton where he describes the levels of Monarch programming. Alpha, Beta, Delta, Theta, Omega, Gamma, right? Okay, get ready. So, in the next section of the Greenbaum speech by Dr. D.C. Hammond, he explains how he accesses the deepest inner programming that's been put into the person he's examining. He's doing this to teach the members of the audience, right? And they're all clinical psychologists, so bear with this because it's a bit unusual, the language and the phrasing, but it's legible enough even for those of us who aren't psychologists. It's just a little different, that's all. Also, the subject matter is really far out there. And the combination of those things makes this so strange, but we can do it. So, let's go. So, from the speech, on the subject of how you would, if you were a trained psychologist hypnotherapist, access the deepest programming of a ritual abuse victim to help them heal, I guess, get your scuba tank on, this goes deep. From the report, quote, The way that I would inquire as to whether or not some of this might be there would be with idiomotor finger signals. After you've set them up, I would say, I want the central inner core of you to take control of the finger signals. Don't ask the unconscious mind. The case where you're inquiring about ritual abuse, that's for the central inner core. The core is a cult-created part. And I want that central inner core of you to take control of this hand of these finger signals and what it has for the yes finger to float up. 
I want to ask the inner core of you, is there any part of you, any part of Mary, if that's the host's name, who knows anything about alpha, beta, delta, or theta? If you get a yes, it should raise a red flag that you might have someone with formal intensive brainwashing and programming in place. I would then ask, I want a part inside who knows something about alpha, beta, delta, and theta to come up to a level where you can speak to me and when you are here, say I am here. I would not ask if a part was willing to. No one is going to particularly want to talk about this. I would just say, I want some part who can tell me about this to come out. Without leading them, ask them what these things are. I've had consults where I've come in. Sometimes I've gotten a yes to that, but as I've done exploration, it appeared to be some kind of compliance response or somebody waiting in two or three cases to appear. Maybe that they were ritual abuse and maybe that they were in some way, but with careful inquiry and looking, it was obvious they did not have what we were looking for. Let me tell you what these are. Let's suppose that this whole front row here are multiples and that she has an altar named Helen and she has one named Mary. She has one named Gertrude. She has one named Elizabeth and she has one named Monica. Every one of those altars may have put on it a program, perhaps designated Alpha 009. A cult person could say Alpha 009 or make some kind of hand gesture to indicate this and get that same part out in any one of them even though they had different names that they may be known by to you. Alphas appear to represent general programming, the first kind of things put in. Betas appear to be sexual programs, for example, how to perform ritual sex and deviant forms of pornography, and that's my words. Deltas are killers trained in how to kill in ceremonies. There also some self-harm stuff mixed in with that, assassination and killing. Thetas are called psychic killers. You know, I had never in my life heard those two terms paired together. I'd never heard the word psychic killers put together. But when you have people in different states, including therapists inquiring and asking, what is theta? And patients say to them, psychic killers. It tends to make one a believer that certain things are very systematic and very widespread. This comes from their belief in psychic sorts of abilities and powers, including their ability to psychically communicate with mother, including their ability to psychically cause somebody to develop an aneurysm and die. It also is a more future-oriented kind of programming. Then there's Omega. I usually don't include that word when I say my first question about this or any part inside that knows anyone or anything about Alpha, Beta, Delta, Theta because Omega will shake them even more. Omega has to do with self-destruct programming. Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. This can include self-mutilation as well as killing themselves programming. Gamma appears to be system protection and deception programming, which will provide misinformation to you, try to misdirect you, tell you half-truths, protect different things inside. Here's the flaw in the system. They have built shut down erasure codes so that if they get into trouble, they could shut something down and they could also erase something. These codes will sometimes be idiosyncratic phrases or ditties. Sometimes they will be numbers, maybe followed by a word. 
there's some real individuality to that. At first, I had hoped if we can get some of these, maybe they'll work with different people. No such luck. It's very unlikely unless they were programmed at about the same point in time as part of the same little group. Stuff that I've seen suggests that they carry laptop computers, the programmers, which still include everything that they did 20, 30 years ago in them, in terms of the names of alters, the programs, the codes, and so on. Now, what you can do is get erasure codes, and I always ask, if I say this code, what will happen? Double check, is there any part inside who has different information? Watch your ADO motor signals, and what I found is you can erase programs by giving the appropriate codes, but then you must abreact the feelings. So if you erase Omega, which is often where I've started because it's the most high risk, afterwards I will get all the Omega, what were formerly Omega alters, together so that they will abreact and give back to the host the memories associated with all of the programming that was being done with Omega and anything any Omega part ever had to do in a fractionated abreaction. They use the metaphor, and it is their metaphor, of robots. And it is like a robot shell comes down over the child altar to make them act in robotic fashion. Once in a while, internally, you will confront robots. What I found from earlier work, and so I speed the process up now because I've confirmed it enough times, is that you can say to the core, core, I want you to look. There's this robot blocking the way in some way, blocking the progress. Go around and look at the back of the head and tell me what you notice on the back of the head or the neck. I just ask it very non-leading like that and what's commonly said to me is that there were wires or a switch. So I'll tell them, hold the wires or flip the switch and it will immobilize the robot and give me a yes signal when you've done it. Pretty soon you get a yes signal. Great. Now that the robot is immobilized, I want you to look inside the robot and tell me what you see. It's generally one or several children. I have them remove the children. I do a little hypnotic magic and ask the core to use a laser and vaporize the robot so nothing is left. They're usually quite amazed that this works, as have been a number of therapists. End quote. Okay, I think that's quite enough. <laughs> Dr. Hammond goes on to describe the methods he uses to uncover various alters within these affected victims, and he describes the traps and pitfalls that programmers have installed into the ritual abuse of victims, and let's just go into one or two so we have an appreciation for the level of madness we've dug down to at this point. Actually, I think that ship has sailed. He tells us, that certain programming has been done on these victims that causes them to shut down if a therapist gets to these levels within the psyche. They install mental recording devices that monitor these people for years, and if they still have contact, these recording personalities can be brought out and report back to the cults. One patient had a program that told her that Dr. Hammond was part of the cult and that if she saw him for therapy, the cult would know. So stuff like that. He goes on to explain that at deep levels, there is programming called green programming. And this stems from a doctor named Greenbaum, also called Dr. Green. And his programming is associated with the tree of life symbolism from the Kabbalah. The Greenbaum programs include things like programs that instigate the subject to suicide if they get caught or found out as a ritual abuse victim. 
and that gets into some really thin ice for the therapist, as you can imagine. And Hammond goes on to explain how a therapist can circumvent these programs and destroy the negative programs without harm to the patient. It's dicey. He also further explains how the subjects have been purposefully programmed to die if a therapist gets them, in the jargon of the profession, integrated. So if they get their multiple personalities all back into a single psyche. Here's one last quote from one of his patients on that very subject. Quote, It's been programmed so that if you succeed and think you've succeeded, you will fail. They build it in as a way to laugh at you. That if you ever get us integrated, we will die. I am one of 12 disciples. End quote. Hammond also says that they found that the death program had a sister as a backup used with mirrors to create the sister part. He says the patient told him that they had to get past and deal with that too. Death had certain things that they said had to be done to integrate. An elaborate ritual involving the girl being in a red dress and specific candles here and there, all that, to get rid of the death programming and the sister death backup. When the patient told him this, he said, Oh, come on, they've lied to you before. And her answer was, wait a minute. This is what they said you would say. They said that no doctor would ever believe they had to go to these extremes to get us well. And that is part of the reason they'd fail. So, Hammond explains that he actually set it all up in a session and went through this procedure described by the patient and they were able to remove the death and sister death programming, and behind that, what did they find? A curtain. And here we go back to the text of the speech for the last time. Quote, The patient said, quote, They assumed that if you ever got to this point, you would, end quote, meaning find the curtain. And along the way, by the way, we had encountered this stuff about the LSD stuff, the green bomb programming. The message was that she said, there is a curtain behind which are the remaining feelings and memories, but it can't be opened from the middle. It's like a stage curtain. It has to be opened this way, that it cannot be opened. They assumed that you would try to deal with all the feelings. That can't be opened until you've dealt with the last part and they've integrated. So far, it looks like we've got integration that's holding. So I found death and destruction in the hourglass and non-bloodline. The tree and the hourglass, this patient has informed me, were made of sand because we were meant to die. We're expendable. We are the unchosen generation. End quote. Okay, there's a lot there. In all of this, it's a bit overwhelming, but the realization is, this is way more involved than, oh yeah, MKUltra, that's when the CIA gave some LSD to people and tried to hypnotize them in the old days. So here we come to the end of part four, and thanks for sticking it out with me. In the next part, we'll tie up the loose ends, so that section is a bit of a mixture of topics. But from here, we can see the light at the end of the hypnosis tunnel. Part five. Canadian Connection, Pop Star Glitches, and MK Everything Else. 
From 1957 to 1964, the CIA sent Scottish psychiatrist Dr. Donald Cameron to work in Canada at the Allen Memorial Institute of McGill University. Cameron had earned the attention of the CIA through his creation of psychic driving, a concept whereby he hoped to correct schizophrenia by erasing memories. This was right up the CIA's alley, and so they recruited him to do this work for MKUltra in Canada. Cameron used LSD, paralytic drugs, so drugs that paralyze you, and he threw in a healthy dose of electroshock therapy, which he liked to apply at 30 to 40 times the normal power levels. And just to be clear, the normal power levels of electroshock therapy suck. His psychic driving experiments consisted of putting patients into drug-induced comas for weeks and as long as three months. In this comatose state, the doctor would play audio tapes of things like total nonsense noise or simple repetitive statements. His experiments were often carried out on patients who entered the institute for common problems like anxiety or depression, then made these test subjects without their knowledge. Many of his patients suffered permanent damage from his actions. Things like amnesia, forgetting how to talk, forgetting who their parents were, or coming to believe that the doctors or nurses in the hospital were their parents. These were known as the Montreal Experiments, and they were fully funded by the CIA. So, what did this absolute criminal insanity do to Dr. Cameron's career? Well, he became the first chairman of the World Psychiatric Association, He was also the president of the American Psychiatric Association, and he was appointed a member of the Nuremberg Tribunal Forum from 1946 to 1947. The Nuremberg trials, as you may know, were held by the Allies against the defeated Nazi Germany officials to punish them for the atrocities they committed against their citizens in World War II. And this Dr. Cameron was one of the people judging them. Astonishing. Leaving Canada, we come back to the States and the question of whether or not MKUltra or what we know about the monarch ritual abuse programming has or does rear its head within our popular culture, to speak broadly, the entertainment industry. A video search online for MKUltra programming glitch opens up a rabbit hole, to be sure. One of the most famous is Britney Spears in an interview with Diane Sawyer, where Britney sort of disengages from the interview and says a few nonsensical things and it's as if she's aware of it happening. She even says, that was weird at the end of it and she points to herself and says, strong Brittany. Then she regains control. There's athlete Draymond Green freezing for 20 seconds in a press conference only coming out of it when the guy talking about their team says his name. You can still find that one. Katy Perry has this strange moment on stage when one of her eyes keeps closing like a robot and she has to press her temple like a button to make it go back. There's a rapper named 2 Chains who freezes like a statue on some TV show. Cardi B at some awards show glitching out for a second. There are several with Hillary Clinton. Eminem. Many news hosts. James Holmes, the supposed Aurora cinema shooter, remember him? Sitting in court with bright orange hair, fully zoned out, looking like a clown on acid. 
That's a totally sketchy story, and an entire episode to be sure. A super creepy one of Al Roker freezing and staring at the camera while Savannah Guthrie and Matt Lauer try to keep calm and move on through whatever show that was. I think the Today Show. It happens the instant that Guthrie says the words, Holy Ghost. Roker likes to joke a lot, so he may have just been clowning around. A lot of these are very similar. Someone is going along just fine in an interview or reporting something, and then you can almost see this odd reaction to a single word, even a word they themselves say. Then they simply act differently for a few seconds. It's usually about 20 seconds, which doesn't sound like long, but... It is a long time to stare at the wall in mid-sentence on a TV interview with a microphone in your face and everyone waiting for your next word. Then, when they snap out of it, there's always some word that seems to trigger the release. In the Draymond Green footage, it seems like it was hearing his own name. That's interesting to me, too, because it might not be that easy if his name was Jim or Robert. Someone could say one of those names at any time and he could get recalled from his trance too soon or whatever. But his name is Draymond, and that's a pretty rare name. It's just a theory. In the Britney Spears interview, you hear someone off camera say strawberry. Then Britney is instantly back to herself. You don't think that's weird? Britney Spears is an entire Monarch programming episode of her own. In the entertainment industry since she was a little girl, a Mickey Mouse Club kid, and that alone is probably a rabbit hole. Then you have that whole free Britney thing because she's been part of a legal conservatorship where her father or some doctor or both of them are basically the legal bosses of, as those rulings say, quote, her person. In other words, other people get to decide, approve, or restrict any and everything in her life, where she goes and what she does and says. Oh yeah, and the conservatorship controls her $60 million. Or it did. I read that she's freed from it now, but I'm not sure. One last subject I want to cover here before we wrap this up are those connections MK Ultra has to a few nefarious characters we all know. We talked about Ted Kaczynski and Whitey Bulger, but we also have Sirhan Sirhan, who is still in prison for killing Bobby Kennedy on the campaign trail, and realistically on his way to the White House, his attorney, Lawrence Teeter, said he believed Sirhan Sirhan was, quote, operating under MK Ultra mind control techniques when he assassinated Bobby Kennedy. That's pretty straightforward. We also have Charlie Manson. Manson is thought by some to have been tied to MK Ultra beginning with his time in prison when he took part in a drug-induced psychological experiment run by the federal government. And this was him in prison before the whole cult murder thing. Manson was in and out of jail his entire life until then. This continued through his ongoing connection to a CIA front known as the Free Medical Clinic in San Francisco. Once he got out of prison, he started going there. And that was in 1967. Author Tom O'Neill concludes that because Manson visited the CIA-run clinic in San Fran numerous times, and that the infamous hypnotist Dr. Jollyon West worked there for the CIA through MKUltra, that Manson saw, or at least knew West. No official records of that, but who knows? Actually, in my opinion, knowing what we now know about MKUltra, 
if Manson visited a clinic where a known MK Ultra hypnotist worked, it seems harder to believe Manson wasn't a part of it. I mean, Manson doesn't seem like a going all the time down to the mental health clinic to take care of my interpersonal mindset health type of guy. Here's what we know about Dr. Jolion West's MK Ultra involvement. Cornell University, where West completed his residency in psychiatry, was an MK Ultra institution and the site of the Human Ecology Fund. And you can look up what the Human Ecology Fund was. We're not going into it. He later became a subcontractor for MK Ultra Subproject 43 through a grant from the CIA while he was chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Oklahoma. That proposal submitted by West was titled Psychophysiological Studies of Hypnosis and Suggestibility with an accompanying document titled Studies of Disassociative States. My summary. Wow, that was quite a ride. To get the most out of this material and to really connect all of the threads into one picture, I suggest listening to the episode again soon. Maybe in a sensory deprivation tank on a head full of psychedelic oatmeal and three shots of espresso. Just kidding. If you learned something new here, share this episode with your friends who might be into it. Thank you. In the process of working on this episode and having conversations on the subject with a few people, one observation I've heard has been that if something like this were going on today, they'd be very careful about keeping it a secret. Well, they were back then too. The literal director of the CIA ordered all of the records on MKUltra to be destroyed, and they basically were. It just so happened that before he gave that order, someone had taken some of the file boxes with letters and memos and descriptions of what they were up to and accidentally stored those in the finance department. That's all that we got our hands on. They thought it was just a bunch of hotel receipts and utility bills or whatever. So to say that if they were doing it now, they'd cover it up, of course they would. They were covering it up back then. The other thing that one of my friends brought up was the question of whether this could have been a rogue group of operatives. So not really an official CIA program. Wildcards doing this. Talked about that earlier. No, this was top down from the director of the CIA, actually spanning four directors of the CIA. President Gerald Ford sat down with the family of Frank Olson and apologized on behalf of the CIA. President Ford also drafted an executive order to prevent drug or other testing on unknowing subjects. As a side note, President Ford actually vetoed the Freedom of Information Act, but Congress bypassed his veto and passed it into law anyway. While we're on the subject, An analysis done by the Brennan Center tells us that if a president signs the country into a state of emergency, they suspend a long list of laws which grants them extraordinary power, one of these being that in that instance the president can suspend a law that prohibits government testing of chemical and biological weapons on unwitting human suspects. However, the Brennan Center report also reminds us Under the National Emergencies Act of 1976, Congress can end a presidentially declared state of emergency, but in more than 40 years, it has never voted to do so. Another question I've thought of is this. We know how technology progresses in leaps. Consider the first cell phone. 
It came in a black vinyl shoulder bag. It was 10 watts. It had a talk time of 30 minutes. Then it took 10 hours to recharge it. Calling someone on that thing made you look like you were calling in an airstrike in Nam. Then we had brick phones, flip phones, blackberries, and eventually touchscreen smartphones. Going back to MK Ultra days, there were no cell phones at all. In fact, if you wanted to call someone in another town, you had to call a person called the operator, usually a lady who was between your town and your friends, and she would physically plug the wire from your landline telephone switch into the plug connected to the telephone where your friend lived. Then she would manually send an electrical signal that would cause your friend's phone to ring. These were called switchboards. Do an internet image search for switchboards. It's amazing. I use this example to ask, has the mind control tech of MK Ultra era evolved as much as the other tech since those times in the 60s and 70s? Did it evolve into the longer, slower, deeper game of social engineering? Occupy Wall Street, race riots, identity politics, the executive branch political circus, the 24-hour news cycle of death, war, and violence? Ultimately, MKUltra was about mind control. It is fully possible that the MKUltra form of individualistic mind control has evolved into the more subtle and arguably more efficient process of perception control. This gets us into Project Mockingbird territory. This is accomplished through the long, slow, systematic influence of your perception until you believe something to be true to such an absolute degree that you don't even consider looking into whether it is or not. Total compliance with an idea. Here is an example. Most people will tell you that violent crime or people being wrongfully killed is a widespread nationwide problem. That is the general perception. In reality, according to the Crime Prevention Research Center, Citing data compiled through the FBI's 2020 Supplementary Homicide Report, 73% of all murders in the U.S. took place in 5% of its counties. 68% of counties in the U.S. did not exceed one murder. So 68% of the counties in the U.S. zero or one murder. The conclusion of that study reads, quote, Murder isn't a nationwide problem. It's a problem in a small set of urban areas, and even in those counties, murders are concentrated in small areas inside them. End quote. So this is just one example of where people's perceptions create aggressive beliefs that are simply false. In this example, who creates those perceptions? The media. Movies. The news. Over and over for years. Is it a coincidence that the person who decides what gets aired on TV or radio is called a programmer? What little we do know about MKUltra is shocking. Imagine what was in all of those documents that Richard Helms succeeded at shredding. What we do know is that this happened. A department of the federal government at the highest levels worked with Nazi scientists and Japanese torture experts to try to learn how to reformat the hard drive of a person 
and install their own mental software to get them to be assassins or spies or to keep them from telling secrets if they were caught. And in the process of trying to figure this out, they experimented on innocent, unknowing citizens with some of the craziest examples of mental and physical torture ever known. Nothing ever happened to any of those involved. They were never held accountable. The best we got was an executive order to say, don't do that again. But the same president who wrote that order also vetoed the Freedom of Information Act. Unsuccessfully, thank God, but he fully tried to stop it. So Project Bluebird became Project Artichoke, which became MKUltra. MKUltra officially ran from 1953 to 1973. 20 years of this. We know that in 1964, MKUltra evolved into MK Search. So that's nine years before they say the whole thing ended. MK Search was divided into MK Often and MK Chickwit. Each of those have different missions, but the point is that we see these things not really going away, but just being divided and given new, and it would seem, progressively worse names. On the surface, this easily makes a case that these hijinks never really end, they just shuffle it all around, but I think there's a more subtle mechanism at work here. If the CIA renames MKUltra as MKSearch, and MKSearch is just as secret after that as MKUltra was before, then if any agent is questioned about it, he can truthfully say, oh no, MKUltra ended. With that, Let's say that this episode has officially ended. Whew, thank you sincerely for investigating mind control and MK Ultra with me. Halloween and Soin are here. So if you're in a spooky mood, go back and check out Renegade Files episode 32, Halloween, Society's Paranormal Fix, where we go deep into the more esoteric reasons behind Halloween and why we, as a culture, keep these traditions in our lives year after year. That's episode 32. Now this was a huge episode, so thanks for coming along. I am glad to have you in the Renegade Files crew. If you like content like this and you want to hear a whole bunch more and see a whole bunch of other cool stuff, bonus episodes, all that, be sure to check out patreon.com slash renegadefiles become an rfa agent there and you can do that for free for a full week so go check it out there's links in the show notes and i hope to see you in there until our next covert project i'm your host lex gordon stay wild cold war child